0: A treatise on religious affections, spiritually enlightening the eyes to understand the Scripture, is to open the eyes. Psalm 119.18 Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Which argues that the reason why the same was not seen in the Scripture before was that the eyes were shut which would not be the case if the meaning that is now understood was not there before, but is now newly added to the Scripture by the manner of the Scriptures coming to the mind. This making a new manner to the Scripture is the same thing as making a new Scripture. It is an adding to the Word which is threatened with so dreadful a curse. Spiritually to understand the Scripture is to have the eyes of the mind open. To behold the wonderful spiritual excellency of the glorious things contained in the true meaning of it, and that always were contained in it, ever since it was written. To behold the amiable and bright manifestations of the divine perfections, and of the excellency and sufficiency of Christ, and the excellency and suitableness of the way of salvation by Christ, and the spiritual glory of the precepts and promises of the Scripture, and so on, Which things are and always were in the Bible, and would have been seen before if it had not been for blindness, without having any new sense added, by the words being sent by God to a particular person, and spoken anew to him with a new meaning. As to a gracious leading of the Spirit, it consists in two things, partly in instructing a person in his duty by the Spirit, and partly in powerfully inducing him to comply with that instruction. But so far as a gracious leading of the Spirit lies in instruction, it consists in a person's being guided by a spiritual and distinguishing taste of that which has in it true moral beauty. I have shown that spiritual knowledge primarily consists in a taste or relish of the amiableness and beauty of that which is truly good and holy." This holy relish is a thing that discerns and distinguishes between good and evil, between holy and unholy, without being at the trouble of a train of reasoning. As he who has a true relish of external beauty knows what is beautiful by looking upon it, he stands in no need of a train of reasoning about the proportion of the features in order to determine whether that which he sees be a beautiful countenance or no. He needs nothing but only the glance of his eye." He who has a correct musical ear knows whether the sound he hears be true harmony. He does not need first to be at the trouble of the reasonings of a mathematician about the proportion of the notes... He that has a healthy palate knows what is good food as soon as he tastes it, without the reasoning of a physician about it. There is a holy beauty and sweetness in words and actions, as well as natural beauty in countenances and sounds and sweetness in food. Job 12.11 Does not the ear try words, and the mouth taste is meat? When a holy and amiable action is suggested to the thoughts of a holy soul, that soul if in the lively exercise of its spiritual taste it once sees a beauty in it and so inclines to it and closes with it on the contrary if an unworthy unholy action be suggested to it its sanctified eye sees no beauty in it and is not pleased with it its sanctified taste relishes no sweetness in it but on the contrary it is nauseous to it Yea, its holy taste and appetite leads it to think of that which is truly lovely, and naturally suggests it, as a healthy taste and appetite naturally suggests the idea of its proper object. Thus a holy person is led by the Spirit, as he is instructed and led by his holy taste and disposition of heart, whereby, in the lively exercise of grace, he easily distinguishes good and evil, and knows at once what is a suitable, amiable behavior towards God and towards. Man, in this case and the other, and judges what is right as it were spontaneously and of himself, without a particular deduction by any other arguments, than the beauty that is seen and goodness that is tasted. Thus Christ blames the Pharisees that they did not even of their own selves judge what was right without needing miracles to prove it. Luke. 12:57 The apostle seems plainly to have respect to this way of judging of spiritual beauty in Romans 12:2 Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God there is such a thing as good taste of natural beauty which learned men often speak of that is exercised about temporal things in judging of them is about the justness of a speech, the goodness of style, the beauty of a poem, the gracefulness of deportment. A late great philosopher of our nation writes thus upon it, To have a taste is to give things a real value, to be touched with the good, to be shocked with the ill, not to be dazzled with false lustres, but in spite of all colors and everything that might deceive or amuse, to judge soundly. Taste and judgment, then, should be the same thing, and yet it is easy to discern a difference. The judgment forms its opinions from reflection. The reason on this occasion fetches a kind of circuit to arrive at its end. It supposes principles, it draws consequences, and it judges, but not without a thorough knowledge of the case, so that after it has pronounced it is ready to render a reason of its decrees." Good taste observes none of these formalities, or it has time to consult. It is taken its side as soon as ever the object is presented. The impression is made, the sentiment formed. As the ear is wounded with a harsh sound, as the smell is soothed with an agreeable odor, before ever the reason have meddled with those objects to judge of them, so the taste opens itself at once and prevents all reflection." They may come afterwards to confirm it and discover the secret reasons of its conduct, but it was not in its power to wait for them. Frequently it happens not to know them at all, and what pain soever it uses cannot discover what it was determined it to think as it did." This conduct is very different from what the judgment observe in its decisions, unless we choose to say that good taste is, as it were, a first motion or a kind of instinct of right reason, which hurries on with rapidity and conducts more securely than all the reasoning she can make. It is a first glance of the eye which discovers to us the nature and relations of things in a moment. You know, Now, as there is such a kind of taste of the mind as this, which philosophers speak of, whereby persons are guided in their judgment of the natural beauty, gracefulness, propriety, nobleness, and sublimity of speeches and action, whereby they judge, as it were, by the glance of the eye, or by the inward sensation and the first impression of the object, so there is likewise such a thing as the divine taste given and maintained by the Spirit of God in the hearts of the saints, whereby they are in like manner led and guided in discerning and distinguishing the true spiritual and holy beauty of actions, and that more easily, readily, and accurately is they more or less of the Spirit of God dwelling in them, and thus the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God in their behavior in the world." A holy disposition and spiritual taste, where grace is strong and lively, will enable the soul to determine what actions are right in becoming Christians, not only more speedily, but far more exactly than the greatest abilities without it. This may be illustrated by the manner in which some habits of mind and dispositions of heart, of a nature inferior to true grace, will teach and guide a man in his actions. For instance... If a man be a very good-natured man, his good nature will teach him better how to act benevolently amongst mankind, and will direct him on every occasion to those speeches and actions which are agreeable to rules of goodness, than the strongest reason will a man of morose temper... So if a man's heart be under the influence of an entire friendship and most endured affection to another, though he be a man of an indifferent capacity, yet this habit of his mind will direct him far more readily and exactly to a speech and deportment which shall in all respects be sweet and kind and agreeable to a benevolent disposition of heart than the greatest capacity without it. HE HAS, AS IT WERE, A SPIRIT WITHIN HIM THAT GUIDES HIM. THE HABIT OF HIS MIND IS ATTENDED WITH A TASTE BY WHICH HE IMMEDIATELY RELISHES THAT AIR AND MAIN, WHICH IS BENEVOLENT, AND DISRELISHES THE CONTRARY. IT CAUSES HIM TO DISTINGUISH BETWEEN ONE AND THE OTHER IN A MOMENT, MORE PRECISELY THAN THE MOST ACCURATE REASONINGS CAN FIND OUT IN MANY HOURS. The nature and inward tendency of a stone or other heavy body that is let fall from aloft shows a way to the center of the earth more exactly in an instant than the ablest mathematician without it could determine by his most accurate observations in a whole day. Thus it is that a spiritual disposition and taste teaches and guides a man in his behavior in the world. So an eminently humble or meek or charitable disposition will direct a person of mean capacity to such a behavior as is agreeable to Christian rules of humility, meekness, and charity far more readily and precisely than the most diligent study and elaborate reasonings of a man of the strongest faculties who is not a Christian spirit within him. So also will a spirit of love to God and holy fear and reverence towards God and filial confidence in God and a heavenly disposition teach and guide a man in his behavior. It is an exceedingly difficult thing for a wicked man destitute of Christian principles in his heart to guide him to know how to demean himself like a Christian, with a life in beauty and heavenly sweetness of a truly holy, humble, Christ-like behavior. He knows not how to put on these garments, neither do they fit him, Ecclesiastes 10, 2, and 3. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to every one that he is a fool with verse 15 The labor of the foolish wearieth every one of them because he knoweth not how to go to the city Proverbs 10:32 The lips of the righteous know not what is acceptable Chapter 15.2. The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. In Chapter 16.23. The heart of the wise teacheth his mouth, and addeth learning to his lips. The saints, in thus judging of actions by a spiritual taste, have not a particular recourse to the express rules of God's word, with respect to every word and action that is before them, the good or evil of which they thus judge. But yet their taste itself in general is subject to the rule of God's word, and must be tried by that, and a right reasoning upon it, as a man of a healthy palate judges of particular morsels by his taste, but yet his palate itself must be judged of, whether it be healthy or no, by certain rules and reasons." But a spiritual taste of soul mightily helps the soul in its reasonings on the word of God and in judging of the true meaning of its rules. For it removes the prejudices of a depraved appetite and naturally leaves the thoughts in the right channel. It casts a light on the word of God and causes the true meaning most naturally to come to mind through the harmony there is between the disposition and relish of a sanctified soul and the true meaning of the rules of God's word. Yea, this harmony tends to bring the texts themselves to mind on proper occasions, as a particular state of the stomach and palate tends to bring such particular meats and drinks to mind as are agreeable to that state. Thus the children of God are led by the Spirit of God in judging of actions themselves, and in their meditations upon and judging of and applying the rules of God's holy word. And so God teaches them his statutes and causes them to understand the way of his precepts, which the psalmist so often prays for. But this leading of the Spirit is a thing exceedingly diverse from that which some call so, which consists not in teaching them God's statutes and precepts that He has already given, but in giving them new precepts of immediate inward speech or suggestion, and has in it no tasting the true excellency of things, or judging or discerning the nature of things at all. They do not determine what is the will of God by any taste or relish, or any manner of judging of the nature of things, but by an immediate dictate concerning the thing to be done. There is no such thing as any judgment or wisdom in the case. Whereas in that leading of the Spirit which is peculiar to God's children, is imparted of that true wisdom and holy discretion so often spoken of in the Word of God, which is high above the other way, is the stars are higher than a glow-worm. Balaam and Saul, who sometimes were led by the spirit in that other way, never had it, and no natural man can have without a change of nature. What has been said of the nature of spiritual understanding is consisting most essentially in a divine supernatural sense and relish of the heart, not only shows that there is nothing of it in this falsely supposed leading of the spirit, but also shows the difference between spiritual understanding and all kinds and forms of enthusiasm, all imaginary sights of God and Christ in heaven, all supposed witnessing of the Spirit and testimonies of the love of God by immediate inward suggestion, and all impressions of future events and immediate revelations of any secret facts whatsoever, all enthusiastical impressions and applications of words of Scripture as though they were words now immediately spoken by God to a particular person in a new meaning and carrying something more in them than the words contained as they lie in the Bible and all interpretations of the mystical meaning of the Scripture by supposed immediate revelation none of these things consist in a divine sense and relish of the heart of the holy beauty and excellency of divine things nor have they anything to do with such a sense but all consist in impressions in the head All are impressions on the imagination and consist in the exciting of external ideas in the mind, either of outward shapes and colors, or words spoken, or letters written, or ideas of things external and sensible, belonging to actions done, or events accomplished or to be accomplished. An enthusiastical supposed manifestation of the love of God is made by the exciting an idea of a smiling countenance, or some other pleasant outward appearance, or by the idea of pleasant words spoken, or written, or excited in the imagination, or by some pleasant bodily sensation. When persons have an imaginary revelation of some secret fact, it is by exciting external ideas, either of some words implying a declaration of that fact, or some visible or sensible circumstances of such a fact. So the supposed leading of the Spirit to do the will of God is either by exciting the idea of words, which are outward things in their minds, either the words of Scripture or other words, which they look upon as an immediate command of God, or else by exciting and impressing strongly the ideas of the outward actions themselves. So when an interpretation of a scripture type or allegory is immediately, in an extraordinary way, strongly suggested, it is by suggesting words, as though one secretly whispered and told a meaning, or by exciting other ideas in the imagination. Experiences and discoveries such as these commonly raise the affections of such as are diluted by them to a great height and make a mighty uproar in both soul and body, and a very great part of the false religion that has been in the world, from one age to another, consists in such discoveries as these, and in the affections that flow from them. In such things consisted the experiences of the ancient Pythagoreans among the heathen, and many others among them who had strange ecstasies and raptures, and pretended to a divine afflatus, an immediate revelation from heaven. In such things as these seem to have consisted the experiences of the Essenes, an ancient sect among the Jews. At and after the time of the apostles, in such things as these consisted the experiences of many of the ancient Gnostics, the Montanists, and many other sects of ancient heretics in the primitive ages of the Christian Church. In such things as these consisted the pretended immediate converse with God and Christ and saints and angels of heaven of the monks, anchorites, recluses, that formerly abounded in the Church of Rome. In such things consisted the pretended High experiences and great spirituality of many sects of enthusiasts. This warmed in the world after the Reformation, such as the Anabaptists, antinomians, and familists, and followers of Nicholas Storch, Thomas Munzer, John Bacold, Henry Pfeiffer, David George, Caspar Swinkfield, Henry Nicholas, Johannes Agricola Ielbius. And the many wild enthusiasts that were in England in the days of Oliver Cromwell, and the followers of Mrs. Anna Hutchinson in New England, as appears by the particular and large accounts given of all these sects by that eminently holy man, Mr. Samuel Rutherford, in his display of the spiritual Antichrist. And in such things as these consisted the experiences of the late French prophets and their followers. And these things also seem to lie the religion of the many kinds of enthusiasts of the present day. It is chiefly by such sort of religion as this that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And it is that which he has ever most successfully made use of to confound hopeful and happy revivals of religion from the beginning of the Christian church to this day. When the Spirit of God is poured out to begin a glorious work, then the old serpent, as fast as possible and by all means, introduces this bastard religion, and mingles it with the true, which is from time to time soon brought all things into confusion. The pernicious consequence of it is not easily imagined or conceived of, until we see and are amazed with the awful effects of it, and the dismal desolation it has made." If the revival of true religion be very great in its beginning, yet if this bastard comes in, there is danger of its doing as Gideon's bastard Abimelech did, who never left until he had slain all his threescore and ten true-born sons, excepting one that was forced to flee. Great and strict, therefore, should be the watch and guard that ministers maintain against such things, especially at a time of great awakening. For men, especially the common people, are easily bewitched with such things, they having such a glaring and glistering show of high religion. The devil hides his own shape, and appears as an angel of light, that men may not be afraid of him, but adore him. The imagination or fancy seems to be that wherein are formed all those delusions of Satan, which those are carried away with who are under the influence of false religion, and counterfeit graces and affections. Here is a devil's grand lurking-place, a very nest of foul and delusive spirits. It is very much to be doubted whether the devil can come at the soul of man at all to affect it, or to excite any thought or motion, or produce any effect whatsoever in it, any other way than by the fancy, which is that power of the soul by which it receives ideas of outward and sensible things." As to the laws and means which the Creator has established for the intercourse and communication of unbodied spirits, we know nothing about them. We do not know by what medium they manifest their thoughts to each other, or excite thoughts in each other. But as to the spirits that are united to bodies, those bodies are their medium of communication. They have no other medium of acting on other creatures, or being acted on by them, than the body. Therefore it is not to be supposed that, Satan can excite any thought or produce any effect in the soul of man, any otherwise, and by some motion of the animal spirits, or by causing some motion or alteration in something which appertains to the body. There is this reason to think that the devil cannot produce thoughts in the soul immediately, or in any other way than by the medium of the body, that he cannot immediately see or know the thoughts of the soul." It is abundantly declared in the scripture to be peculiar to the omniscient God to do that, but it is not likely that the devil can immediately produce an effect which is out of the reach of his immediate view. It seems unreasonable to suppose that his immediate agency should be out of his own sight, or that it should be impossible for him to see what he himself immediately does. Is it not unreasonable to suppose that any spirit or intelligent agent should, by the act of his will, produce effects according to his understanding, or agreeable to his own thoughts, and that immediately, and yet the effects produced be beyond the reach of his understanding, or where he can have no immediate perception of them? But if this be so, that the devil cannot produce thoughts in the soul immediately, or in any other way than by the animal spirits or by the body, then it follows that he never brings to pass anything in the soul but by the imagination or fancy, or by exciting external ideas. For if we know that alterations in the body do immediately excite no other sort of ideas in the mind but external ones, or those of the outward senses, as to reflection, abstraction, reasoning, and the thoughts and inward motions which are the fruits of these acts of the mind, they are not the nearest effects of impressions on the body, so that it must be only by the imagination that Satan has access to the soul to tempt and delude it, or suggest anything to it. Anthony Burgess wrote on Original Sin in 1659, Quote, The imagination is that room of the soul wherein the devil doth often appear. Indeed, to speak exactly, the devil hath no efficient power over the rational part of a man. He cannot change the will. He cannot alter the heart of a man. So that the utmost he can do in tempting a man to sin is suasion and suggestion only. But how doth the devil do this?' Even by working upon the imagination, he observeth the temper and bodily constitution of a man, and thereupon suggests to his fancy, and injects his fiery darts thereinto, by which the mind will come to be wrought upon. The devil then, though he hath no imperious efficacy over thy will, yet he can thus stir and move thy imagination, and thou, being naturally destitute of grace, canst not withstand these suggestions. Hence it is that any sin in thy imagination, though but in the outward works of the soul, yet doth quickly lay hold on all. And indeed indeed, by this means do arise those horrible delusions that are in many erroneous ways of religion, all is because our imaginations are corrupted. Yea, how often are these diabolical delusions of the imagination taken for the gracious operation of God's spirit? It is from hence that many have pretended to enthusiasms. They leave the scriptures and wholly attend to what they perceive and feel within them. The great Francois Turretin, speaking on that question, what is the power of angels, says, quote, As to bodies, there is no doubt but that they can do a great deal upon all sorts of elementary and sublinary bodies, to move them locally and variously to agitate them. It is also certain that they can act upon the external and internal senses to excite them or to bind them. But as to the rational soul itself, they can do nothing immediately upon that, for to God alone alone. alone who knows and searches the hearts, and who has them in his hands, does it also appertain to bow and move them whithersoever he will, but angels can act upon the rational soul only immediately by imaginations." And this seems to be the reason why persons that are under the disease of melancholy are commonly so visibly and remarkably subject to the suggestions and temptations of Satan, that being a disease which peculiarly affects the animal spirits, and is attended with weakness of that part of the body which is the foundation of the animal spirits, even the brain, which is, as it were, the seat of the fancy." IT IS BY IMPRESSIONS MADE ON THE BRAIN THAT ANY IDEAS ARE EXCITED IN THE MIND BY THE MOTION OF THE ANIMAL SPIRITS or any changes made in the body. The brain being thus weakened and diseased, it is less under the command of the higher faculties of the soul, and yields more easily to intrinsic impressions, and is overpowered by the disordered motions of the animal spirits. And so the devil has greater advantage to affect the mind by working on the imagination. And thus Satan, when he casts in those horrid suggestions into the minds of many melancholy persons in which they have no hand. he does it by exciting imaginary ideas, either of some dreadful words or sentences, or other horrid outward ideas. And when he tempts other persons who are not melancholy, he does it by presenting to the imagination in a lively and in a luring manner the objects of their lusts, or by exciting ideas of words and so by them exciting thoughts or by promoting an imagination of outward actions, events, or circumstances. Innumerable are the ways by which the mind may be led on to all kinds of evil thoughts, by the exciting of external ideas in the imagination. If persons keep no guard at these avenues of Satan, by which he has access to the soul to tempt and delude it, they will be likely to have enough of him. And especially if, instead of guarding against him, they lay themselves open to him, and seek and invite him, because he appears as an angel of light, and counterfeits the illuminations and graces of the Spirit of God by inward whispers, and immediate suggestions of facts and events, pleasant voices, beautiful images, and other impressions on the imagination. There are many who are deluded by such things, and are lifted up with them, and seek after them, that have a continued Force of them, and can have them almost when they will, and especially when their pride and vainglory have most occasion for them, to make a show of them before company. It is with them something as it is with those who are professors of the art of telling where law things are to be found, by impressions made on their imaginations. They lay in themselves open to the devil. He is always on hand to give them the desired impression." Before I finish what I would say on this head of imaginations, counterfeiting spiritual light and affections arising from them, I would renewedly, to prevent misunderstanding of what has been said, desire it may be observed that I am far from determining that no affections are spiritual which are attended with imaginary ideas... Such is the nature of man that he can scarcely think of anything intensely without some kind of outward ideas. They arise and interpose themselves unavoidably in the course of a man's thoughts, though oftentimes they are very confused and are not what the mind regards. When the mind is much engaged in the thoughts intense, oftentimes the imagination is more strong and the outward idea more lively, especially in persons of some constitutions of body. But there is a great difference between these two things. Lively imaginations arising from strong affections, and strong affections arising from lively imaginations. The former may be, and doubtless often is, an accompaniment of truly gracious affections. The affections do not arise from the imagination, nor have any dependence upon it. But on the contrary, the imagination is only the accidental effect or consequent of the affection through the infirmity of Human nature, but when the latter is the case, as it often is, and the affection arises from the imagination, is built upon it as its foundation. Instead of a spiritual illumination or discovery, then is the affection, however elevated, worthless and vain. And this is the drift of what has now been said of impressions on the imagination. Having observed this, I proceed to another mark of gracious affections. Number Five. Truly gracious affections are attended with a reasonable and spiritual conviction of the reality and certainty of divine things. This seems to be implied in the text that was laid as the foundation of this discourse: Whom have ye not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. All those who are truly gracious persons have a solid, full, thorough, and effectual conviction of the truth of the great things of the gospel. I mean that they no longer halt between two opinions. The great doctrines of the gospel cease to be any longer doubtful things or matters of opinion, which, though probable, are yet disputable. But with them they are points settled and determined, as undoubted and indisputable, so that they are not afraid to venture their all upon their truth. Their conviction is an effectual conviction, so that the great spiritual, mysterious, and invisible things of the gospel have the influence of real and certain things upon them. They have the weight and power of real things in their hearts and accordingly rule in their affections and govern them through the course of their lives with respect to Christ being the Son of God and Savior of the world, and the great things He has revealed concerning Himself and His Father and another world, they have not only a predominating opinion that these things are true, and so yield their assent, as they do in many other manners of doubtful speculation, but they see that it is really so. Their eyes are open so that they see that really Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as to the things which Christ has revealed of God's eternal purposes and designs concerning fallen man, and the glorious and everlasting things prepared for the saints in another world, they see that they are so indeed, and therefore these things are of great weight with them, and have a mighty power upon their hearts and influence over their practice, in some measure answerable to their infinite importance." That all true Christians have such a kind of conviction of the truth of the things of the gospel is abundantly manifest from the Holy Scriptures. I will mention a few places of many. Matthew 16, verses 15 to 17. But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ the Son of the Living God, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, my Father which is in heaven hath revealed it unto thee. John six, sixty eight and sixty nine, thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ the Son of the Living God. John seventeen, six to eight. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Acts 8.37 If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest... 2 Corinthians 4.11-14 We which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Death worketh in us. We have in the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. Verse 16, For which cause we faint not. In verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, in chapter 5, 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God. In verses 6, 7, and 8, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Timothy one twelve, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hebrews three six, Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Hebrews eleven one. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Together with that whole chapter, 1 John 4, 13-16, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. in Chapter 5, 4 and 5 For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is a victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Thus are truly gracious affections attended with the conviction and persuasion of the truth of the things of the gospel, and have their evidence and reality, as these and other scriptures demonstrate. There are many religious affections which are not attended with such a conviction of the judgment. There are many apprehensions and ideas which some have that they call divine discoveries, which are affecting but not convincing. Though for a little while they may seem to be more persuaded of the truth of the things of religion than they used to be, and may yield a forward assent, like many of Christ's hearers who believe for a while, yet they have no thorough and effectual conviction. There is no great abiding change in them in this respect that, whereas formerly they did not realize the great things of the Gospel, now these things with regard to reality and certainty appear new to them, and they be Hold them quite in another view than they used to do. There are many persons who have been exceedingly raised with religious affections and think they have been converted, but they do not seem to be any more convinced of the truth of the gospel than they used to be, or at least there is no remarkable alteration. They are not men who live under the influence and power of a realizing conviction of the infinite and eternal things which the gospel reveals. If they were, it would be impossible for them to live as they do. Their affections, because they are not attended with a thorough conviction of the mind, are not at all to be depended on, however great a show and noise they make. It is like the blaze of tow, or crackling of thorns, or like the forward flourishing blade on stony ground that has no root nor deepness of earth to maintain its life. Some persons under high affections and a confident persuasion of their good estate have that which they very ignorantly call a scene of the truth of the word of God but which is very far from it. They have some texts of Scripture coming to their minds in a sudden and extraordinary manner, immediately declaring unto them, as they suppose, that their sins are forgiven, or that God loves them and will save them, and it may be have a chain of Scriptures coming one after another to the same purpose, and they are convinced that it is truth. They are confident that it is certainly so, that their sins are forgiven, and God does love them. They say they know it is so. And when the words of Scripture are suggested to them, and as they suppose immediately spoken to them by God, they are ready to cry out, TRUTH! TRUTH! IT IS CERTAINLY SO! THE WORD OF GOD IS TRUE. And this they call a seeing the truth of the word of God, whereas the whole of their faith amounts to no more than only a strong confidence of their own good estate. And so a confidence that these words are true, which they suppose tell them they are in a good estate, when indeed, as was shown before, there is no scripture which declares that any person is in a good estate directly, or any other way than by consequence." So that this, instead of being a real sight of the truth of the word of God, is a sight of nothing but a phantom, and is wholly a delusion. Truly to see the truth of the word of God is to see the truth of the gospel, which is a glorious doctrine the word of God contains concerning God and Jesus Christ, and the way of salvation by him, and the world of glory that he has entered into and purchased for all them who believe, and not a revelation that such and such particular persons are true Christians and shall go to Heaven, Therefore those affections which arise from no other persuasion of the truth of the word of God than this, arise from delusion and not true conviction, and consequently are themselves delusive and vain. But if the religious affections that persons have do indeed arise from a strong persuasion of the truth of the Christian religion, their affections are not the better unless their persuasion be a reasonable persuasion or conviction. By a reasonable conviction I mean a conviction founded on real evidence, or upon that which is a good reason or just ground of conviction. Men may have a strong persuasion that the Christian religion is true when their persuasion is not at all built on evidence, but altogether... Together on education and the opinion of others, as many Mohammedans are strongly persuaded of the truth of the Mohammedan religion, because their fathers and neighbors and nation believe it. The belief of the truth of the Christian religion, which is built on the very same grounds with the Mohammedans' belief of the Mohammedan religion, is the same sort of belief. And though the thing believed happens to be better, yet that does not make the belief itself to be of a better sort. For though the thing believed happens to be true, yet the belief of it is not owing to this truth, but to education. And as the conviction is no better than the Mahometans' conviction, so the affections that flow from it are no better in themselves than the religious affections of Mahometans. But if the belief of Christian doctrines be not merely from education, but indeed from reasons and arguments which are offered, it will not from thence necessarily follow that their affections are truly gracious, for in order to that, it is requisite not only that the belief which their affections arise from should be reasonable, but also a spiritual belief or conviction. I suppose none will doubt but that some natural men do yield a kind of assent to their judgment to the truth of the Christian religion from the rational proofs or arguments that are offered to evince it. Judas, without doubt, thought Jesus to be the Messiah from the things which he saw and heard, but yet all along was a devil. So in John 2... 23-25 23-25 to 25, We read of many that believed in Christ's name, when they saw the miracles that he did, whom yet Christ knew had not that within them which is to be depended on. So Simon the sorcerer believed, when he beheld the miracles and signs which were done, but yet remained in the gull of bitterness and bond of iniquity. Acts 8.13-23 And if there is such a belief or assent of the judgment in some natural men, none can doubt but that religious affections may arise from that assent or belief, as we read of some who believed for a while, that were greatly affected, and anon with joy received the word." It is evident that there is such a thing as a spiritual belief or conviction of the truth of the things of the gospel, or a belief that is peculiar to those who are spiritual, or who are regenerated and have the Spirit of God in His holy communications, and dwelling in them is a vital principle so that the conviction they have does not only differ from that which natural men have in its commitments, and that it is accompanied with good works, but the belief itself is diverse. The assent and conviction of the judgment is a kind peculiar to those who are spiritual, and that which natural men are wholly destitute of. This is evident by the scripture, if anything at all is so. John 17.8 They have believed that thou didst send me. Titus 1.1. 1, 1. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. John 16.27. The Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. First John 4.15 Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Chapter five one, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 10 He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.